Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, page number 554 in your pew Bibles. And while you're turning there, the children ages 3 to 8 are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson with the double Mrs. Byers. Mrs. Two, Mrs. Two Mrs. Byers is, is over there. Now, once again, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, and uh, this is not a terribly long chapter, only 16 verses. But rather than reading it all here at, at, up front, I'm going to read it during the, uh, during the, in, in parts throughout the sermon. So let me just pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word as we look at it now, as it's read and as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Most of the books of the Bible are read uh, from beginning to end. Now, we don't really preach that way, do we? Uh, we we'd take up all of our sermon time and then wouldn't get even get through halfway many of the books of the Bible because it might take a couple of hours to read the book of Deuteronomy, for example. But Ecclesiastes is one of those that you just about could, but I'm not going to do that today. But when you read a book of the Bible, you get the whole picture. Uh, and when you just look at it in snippets like we do in sermons, sometimes you have to kind of step back and remember, all right, what is the whole picture here? And, of course, in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we see are words that are really kind of depressing and discouraging. But then there are words of encouragement. And then you read another chapter, and it's a little bit more on the depress, depressing side. And then you read it, and it's uh, very joyful and encouraging. And it's, and it's like that over and over again. Now, in chapters 1 through 3, you saw a good example of it. You see the phrase, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. In chapter 1, you, you see in multiple times and still hear this idea of things striving after the wind. And, of course, what Solomon is saying here with these uh, words, these phrases, is that, is that life is short. Uh, life lacks sort of substance. Um, it, it, uh, it doesn't provide that ultimate fulfillment or ultimate satisfaction, which we're all looking for. Um, but you also see in these chapters, chapters 1 through 3, not just those words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and so forth. But you also see words of encouragement like, therefore, eat and drink and, and work hard and enjoy your work. So it's not all bad news there. Again, discouraging parts followed by encouraging, followed by discouraging, followed by encouraging. Here in chapter 4 is one of those sort of depressing chapters. Um, there aren't words of encouragement in this particular one, in this particular chapter. It's just sort of a, you know, simply, hey, we look at life and what we see is a lot of oppression, a lot of envy, a lot of loneliness, a lot of fickleness. And so what I want to do is kind of step back for just a minute. And probably if I was a, a really good preacher, I would have addressed uh, this 12th chapter even before now. So I'll do it now. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last couple of phrases there, which, of course, we call them verses. But in the end of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, these are the words we read. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you read it in the NIV, it reads uh, similarly. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Now again, if you were reading this in one sitting, we'd read those discouraging parts followed by the encouraging parts, but we would get to the end and we, and we would see here's the wisest man to ever live, Solomon, and he sums it up right there. And, and it's in a sense that he says, okay, here's in conclusion, if he were giving a speech, in conclusion, that's it. Fear God and keep His commands. In other words, and I've preached this already, you're not going to figure all of life out. You can't make a crooked way straight. Uh, there, there are going to be things that you're not even in, intended to try to figure out. You're not going to be able to fix everything. So what do you do? Chapter 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep His commands. Now, I wanted to bring you back, bring you to this because, one, again, like I said, if I was a better preacher, I would have already introduced you to the end, uh, chapter 12, verse 13. But I bring it to, into your uh, attention now because at this chapter, upon the reading of chapter 4, you've got really one of three options. You, one of three options. You can read this and say, good grief. <laughs> There's just oppression and envy and loneliness and fickleness and just, you know, sin all over the place. And you just throw your hands up in despair. That's one option. The other option would, would be to see it all and just join the party. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. I'll just get in and I'll be oppressive and I'll be envious and I'll, I'll be fickle and, and lonely. Just, you know, just dive in. Or chapter 12, verse 13. You can say, you know what, I just can't quite figure it all out. Fear God and keep His commands. That's what Solomon's saying here. Live life um, under the sun. Again, that's the phrase that he uses for this, this life. Under the sun with the eyes of faith. Fear God and keep His commandments. So let me work through it with a few uh, details here. Number one. We're called here to fear God and keep His commandments despite oppression. Despite oppression. You see here in these first three verses that the world is filled with oppression. Of course, we, we see it in life. And we can either oppress others or get discouraged because of the oppression. Or we can fear God and keep His commandments despite oppression. Verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In chapters 1 through 3, Solomon makes it very clear that we don't have any control over time. Uh, that was especially the sermon from last Sunday. But what you see here in this chapter is man can't not only control time, he can't control others. Clearly, so Solomon saw lots of oppression in the world. 
And then in verse 3, you see that he uh, equates it to the term evil deeds. In the NIV commentary, Ian Provan, he writes these words. In the Bible, oppression involves cheating one's neighbor of something. Leviticus chapter 6 associates it with stealing, retaining lost property that has been found, and the swearing falsely. It involves defrauding our neighbor and robbing him. It involves making an unjust gain, including the profit made from interest on loans. It is the abuse of power, financial and otherwise, perpetrated on those who are not powerful and are indeed vulnerable, the poor, widows, orphans, and strangers. Thus, it is often associated with violence and bloodshed and with the denial of rights and justice. We see a lot of that in the world. And again, your options are just throw your hands up and live discouraged because of it. Or you can join in and just participate in it and try to get ahead by oppressing others. Or you can say, you know what? Fear God, trust the Lord, and keep His commandments. There's certainly a lot of talk about oppression these days. That's one of the things you definitely don't want to be today is, is an oppressor. Because it's not really a problem to be a victim of oppression today. It's, 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 a, it's a good way to get sympathy and be accepted, certainly. But the reality is we've all been oppressive at times. There's not a one of us who has not cheated or defrauded or made unjust gain or abused powers or stepped on others to get where we want to go. We've all, we're all guilty of that. I mean, maybe not in some major, you know, systemic government, government policy sorts of ways, but we've always, we've all done it, at least in little ways. I'm not sure if you saw a video this week. It, it, um, it was, it was, a, it was, it ended up, ended up being a funny video of Angela Davis, uh, who was interviewed. I forget who the interviewer was, but she was interviewed about her ancestry. I was not real familiar with An Angela Davis, um, but she's an author, a political activist, um, she was a professor. She's retired now. Professor, a member of the Communist Party of America, member of the Black Panthers, feminist promoter of reparations, lots, lots of things, very active. Um, her mother grew up in foster homes, and so she didn't know about her family. And I guess you can, you can do these DNA tests. I think one of them is called 23andMe or something like that. I can't remember it all. But you can do all this stuff to kind of learn about your ancestry. And uh, so, and since she didn't, since her mother grew up in foster home, she didn't know about hers, and she learned through this research that uh, of her, into her ancestry that her maternal grandfather was a white guy. And going up from there, her fourth great grandfather actually fought in the uh, Revolutionary War and owned slaves, which of course was shocking to her to find that that was a part of her of her uh, her family. And then she learned from her father's side <clears throat> that her paternal grandmother descended from slaves. And, uh, but her grandfather on that side was, was white. And then the article even goes on, and I saw this part in the interview, um, and it didn't say whether it was her maternal side or paternal side, but um, one of her ancestors actually came over on the Mayflower. And, and she was just, her mind was boggled by all this. And she just laughed. She said, this is just too much to take in for me. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with all this. There's a lot of information because she was learning about it. Kind of, I guess it was, you know, in a sense they were recording the live presentation of that. And she admitted that she was conflicted 
about that all. Um, because here she is as promoting reparations, but if, you know, according to her ancestor, her ancestry, ancestry, she should both, in a sense, pay reparations and receive them. And you know, my point is just simply, that's kind of all of us. We've all been in situations where we've been oppressed. We've all been oppressive to others, and maybe again in some smaller ways. But it's just a part, a part of us. It. You can't escape oppression in the world. You can't escape oppression under the sun, as it says in Ecclesiastes. It's it's something we've all experienced or perpetrated. We're sinners. And we see it in the world. We see it in our own lives. I think about this guy in South Carolina. There's a, 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 um, a a trial going on right now for this guy. I forget some of the details. I saw a little... Um, almost like a little document, documentary on it not too long ago. I can't remember all the details, but this guy who's an attorney, uh, I believe, and he would he would um, get people to sue others for kind of slip and fall type accidents. He was, you know, I guess the Alexander Shannara type guy, and um, um, he was so he would sue sue folks, but then he would so then he would win some money. There'd be a, some sort of settlement or something, but he wouldn't give the money. To the clients, or he would give them just a little portion of it, or something like that. That's that's part of the. Well, he's actually being tried for something else, but all that's coming out in the process. I mean, that is that's serious oppression, and we may not be oppressing others to the same degree, but we've, we've all experienced it. We've all participated in stepping on others to get ahead, defrauding others, cheating others. Again, maybe little ways, but we've all done it. I saw a tweet this week by um, R.C. Sproul Jr., and uh, he, he had, had these words. Whenever we say people are so blank, we need to follow it up with, just like me. <laughs> That's so true. We, you could read this and, and you could see it in the world and say, ah, people are so oppressive, just like me, just like I have been in, in many ways. Well, the Hebrews... The people of God were brought out of Egypt. They were given the promised land. They were given instructions on how to live as a holy community, as a righteous community. And we, as Christians today, the church, we should be the same. And a starting place for us would be modeling uh, this righteous community. It begins with me, not oppressing, not throwing up my hands in despair and just joining in. But according, again, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, fearing God and keeping His commandments. Second, we see in this passage that we're to fear God and keep His commandments despite envy. Beginning in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. One of the commentaries puts it this way. Envy is the suspicion or realization that others are gaining more from life than we are that leads us on to compete with them in the insane rat race striving to outdo them. And then uh, one of 
one of our church members sent me an article a couple of weeks ago, actually, about he thought this this really fits with um, Ecclesiastes, and it really fits with this particular aspect of Ecclesiastes, this envy. Um, it, this is the article. I can't. I didn't. I could get the name of it. It was called. Anyway, the Fleischman effect, or anyway, it was about this TV show, really, that takes place in New York City. And so the article of the writer of this article lived in New York, and uh, it begins. The article begins this way: There's a game a friend of mine likes to play in her affluent Brooklyn neighborhood. When she's walking down Henry Street, which I didn't know Henry Street, so I went on Google Maps and looked. You know, looked like kind of normal New York houses to me. But what anyway? Uh, when she's walking down Henry Street, Street, she looks up at the multi-million-dollar brownstones and imagines the lives of the people inside. In her version, most of them went to Harvard and made life choices better than hers, which have, rewar- have rewarded them with original pocket doors and Gagano appliances. I guess some fancy appliance type. Mm-hmm. But then she remembers they still have to lug a stroller up the front stairs every time they come home. They still have to bring their laundry to the basement where there are probably mice. <laughs> it's so crazy how rich you have to be in New York to live comfortably, just comfortably. She tells me, slightly out of breath, while she runs to a meeting. There's this very subtle heartbreak that perhaps people made better life choices than you, and their houses are bigger, and they are happier. That's the way the article begins. And then she talks more, uh, uh, tells one story about a lady who has a a $40,700 a year pre-K program uh, that she's trying to get her daughter in. she continues, the author, the crazy, the crazy thing is that this friend at 45 has not only an apartment in the city, but a weekend house outside it, one that she bought with earnings from her successful career and enjoys with her partner and kids. She's happy. She's undeniably, uh, she is, she's happy, yet she's undeniably worn out from trying to stay that way in the city where exorbitant wealth, two nannies and a chauffeur wealth, spring break and St. Bart's wealth is everywhere. If you find yourself in your 40s, still living in New York, still hustling, still striving, there's a part of you that is completely beat down and a little bit unwell. Sounds like a great place to where you want to be, right? Laura, a 46-year-old mom of two in Manhattan who sends her kids to one of the city's most prestigious private schools, says that their school, quote, unless you're a parent who's a banker with a capital B, whatever that is, or a lawyer with a capital L, it's like you don't exist. The go-to bat mitzvah gift of the moment is a Cartier bracelet, bracelet for which moms are expected to pitch in for the group. I didn't know what a Cartier bracelet is, so I had to look it up, of course. And, um, you know, this is some fancy bracelet. The starting price on these things. So, so a bat mitzvah would be for a Jewish girl at 12 or 13 years old, sort of her uh, introduction or presentation to the world as an adult um, party. And the, the bat mitzvah gift of... At, the jour in New York City among the elites, I guess, right now is this gift. The starting price of them was eighteen hundred dollars, um, and most of them were five, six, seven thousand dollars for these for these bracelets that you're supposed to chip in for. Page forty cringes as she tells me about the consultant she and her husband hired to help their five-year-old get into a private kindergarten next year. I'm like, are we crazy? Am I doing this? We are two decent human beings. We're on boards. We're community leaders. And we're hiring someone to draft and edit our thank you letters and to tell us to hold the door open on school tours. They've also hired a tutor and enrolled their child in Russian math, a trend now among preschool parents 
who heard that the old Soviet method might give their children a leg up. That's envy. I mean, that's the whole. And this was kind of the article was much longer, and it was just over and over again. That's what that's what we all um, have in our in our world now. We don't live in New York City. We're in Birmingham, Alabama. And so we sort of Christianize a lot of our envy because it's still in certain ways sort of a Christian culture here in the South. And so we, we sort of Christianize our envy. We, we hide it better. But it's still there in our hearts. Charlie Munger, who uh, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett's right-hand man, he, he said these in a video I saw of him recently. People are less happy about the state of affairs today than they were when things were tougher. And that has a very simple explanation. The world is not driven by greed. It is driven by envy. The fact that everybody's five times better off than they used to be, they take it for granted. And all they can think about is somebody else has more now and it's not fair that he should have it and they don't. That's the reason that God came down and told Moses not to envy your neighbor's wife or even his donkey. It's weird for somebody my age because I was in the middle of the Great Depression when the hardship was unbelievable. And I was safer walking around Omaha in the evening than I am in my own neighborhood in L.A. after all this wealth. A lot of people are very unhappy and feel very abused after everything has improved by about 600% because there is still somebody else who has more. You know, Christian... That sort of envy, it's, it's not an option. It's not an option for us. And it may be par for the course for those who don't know Christ, but for Christians, it's not an option. Now, we still see the, you know, parts of it in our heart. And we, we, we repent of it and we turn to Christ and we, we fling ourselves onto Christ. But it's not... That's not what we do as Christians. And we don't have to because the Lord gives us grace to be content with what we have and to be thankful for our gifts that He gives us each day. And if you find yourself eaten up with envy or agreeing with envy, as they say, I would love to chat. We would love to, I'd love to get together with you because if you're being eaten up with that, then it means you're not being eaten up by Christ. And something's got to go. You can't serve two masters. Again, you can either look at the world and see the envy and oppression and just throw your hands up, or you can see the world and just join in, or you can fear God and keep His commandments. These next two points, very brief. Number three, fear God and keep His commandments despite loneliness. Beginning in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other. One person who who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, Solomon here is just recognizing that there are a lot of lonely people in the world. He notes that two people are more productive than one, which is certainly the case. Alone, you aren't nearly as effective or fruitful. 
two are better than one, certainly physically, but even more so spiritually, intellectually, mentally, emotionally. Proverbs chapter 27 calls it iron sharpening iron. We need others. We need others to challenge us. We need feedback from others. We need to be open to others. There's certainly a lot of loneliness in the world, but we need to fear God and keep His commandments despite that loneliness. And then finally, fear God and keep His commandments despite fickleness. Despite fickleness. Beginning in verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let me read that from the New Living Translation. It is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he had been in prison. But then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. Endless crowds stand around him, but then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. Ecclesiastes reminds us that people are fickle, that people will swap allegiances very, very quickly, which just reminds us that our hope can't be in people, in approval, in affirmation, in the applause of the crowd. Because people will disappoint us. Because people, and that's us, are sinners. Yes, in Christ we are righteous. And at the same time, we are sinners. This strange combination of things. So what do you do in light of all this? How do you live in light of all this sin that's, that's very clearly noted here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4? Fear God and keep His commandments. Have a holy respect for God and do what He says. Be in awe of God and obey Him. That's the way we should live our lives. And what I want to say is when you find yourself unable to do that, unable to make seemingly any headway in in dealing with oppression, envy, loneliness, fickleness, that's when you turn to the Lord and you cry out for deliverance. That's when you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you give yourself fully to Him. Again, you can either look at the world and throw up your hands or join in, or you can fear God and keep His commandments. I've used this quote before. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, is uh, it's like a series of letters from Screwtape to Wormwood, who was his underling kind of mentor or mentee, and and uh, as as demons, and they were of course they're trying to attack their enemy, who is God and and God's people, and so he's writing letters to him on how to do that well. And he says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys.
that's when their cause is never more in danger. So in the world, we're going to see oppression and envy and fickleness and loneliness. So we give ourselves to Jesus and we live by faith, fearing the Lord and keeping His commands. And we look forward to the, to the days. You know, Ecclesiastes talks about living under the sun. We look forward to the day where there's a new sun. The Bible talks about new heavens and new earth. And we will, as the song goes, we will feast in the house of Zion. We look forward to that day where we will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the world can be a discouraging place. And we're often caught up in the sins of the world. And I pray, O oh Lord, that You would enable us to see our sins in light of this chapter. Enable us to see the ways that we too often oppress and envy and wallow in loneliness and fickleness. And then, Lord, lead us to repentance. Lead us to faith in Jesus, the One who Himself was oppressed and betrayed by fickle disciples so that those fickle disciples might be saved, might be delivered. We pray that you would bring this about, this understanding in our hearts, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing together as a hymn of response number 705, I Know Whom I Have Believed.
And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. today to stimulate your thinking. I'd love a chance to get to know you a little bit better and have some conversation. Please feel free to reach out to me in whatever way is comfortable for you. You can come by the office or I'll buy you lunch or just a cup of coffee. Of course, you can always come by on Sunday mornings and we can meet face to face. Our new service time is 9.30 a.m.